Good evening. Um, welcome to this month's Bible Q and A. Uh, we are hanging out in the Book of Leviticus. Woo! Yeah, you can see the thrilled look on your faces. Uh, <laughs> um, so I pray, and then and we'll jump in. So, Father God, we thank you for your word, even for the Book of Leviticus, and uh, we thank you that you want us to know you and you want us to grow deeper in relationship with you and so for generations you have been revealing yourself to people and uh, we have the honor of reading some of that story and getting to to know what you are like and I pray that tonight Lord that by your spirit as we wrestle with some of these questions that you would reveal more of your character to us that you would stir our hearts more towards you and that you would, uh, you would just excite us about what your word has to say about who you are and the kind of relationship you want with us. So yeah, come by your spirit, Lord. May there be wisdom and revelation in this place tonight. We ask in your name, Jesus. Amen. Great. So we'll jump straight in. Dennis is up first. That's a relief, says Chris. Uh, question one. Uh, about the offerings, so how frequently were offerings made or required? Dan? Yeah, um, I've got to watch myself tonight because i got Mr. Leviticus to my right. And I've, got to watch. I've got to tell you this story, right? Now, this is, you, I mean, this is a secret, right? I spoke to Matt's mum, and she told me that his middle name was Levi Leviticus. <laughs> right? Now, that's, that's true, right? Levi Leviticus, that's his middle name. Right, I, I wasn't supposed to let that out, but there you go. Okay. Um, first question, how frequent were these offerings made or required? Now, obviously, the folly of this question is, is enormous. If you went through the Bible verses on it, uh, you know, we'd be here at 12 o'clock. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read out all of the uh, offerings... Uh, so that you can see how long and how frequent those offerings were. Uh, and that should answer the question. So I'm going to go through those, if I can find my place. Right, here we go. Um, regular burnt offerings, they were daily. A daily offering of two male lambs, one in the morning, one in the evening. With each offering... There was a required cereal and drink offering. On a Sabbath, each Sabbath, there were additional offerings of two male lambs. New moon, that's once every month. On the first day of each month, two bulls, one ram, and seven lambs were offered, plus a goat as a sin offering. At the Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, that is, two bulls, one ram, Seven male lambs plus one goat for a sin offering were offered on each of the seven days of unleavened bread. At the Feast of Trumpets, one bull, one ram, seven male rams, and a male goat as a sin offering. On the Day of Atonement, one bull, one ram, seven male lambs, and a male goat. The Feast of Tabernacles, this has a reducing number of bulls starting at 13 on the first day, going down to seven on the seventh day. With these were two rams, 14 male lambs, also the goat for the sin offering. Uh, I'll come to that in, in the next question. Each day, the total burnt offerings were 70 bulls, 14 rams, and 98 male lambs. During these times, private burnt offerings were expected in addition to the burnt offerings. That's the offerings that people would bring to the temple for their everyday um, sin offering. Uh, burnt offerings will also be offered at a time of cleansing for those who are ceremonially unclean, that is purification of women after childbirth, cleansing of a leper, cleansing of men and women for various discharges, cleansing of a Nazarite who has broken his vow, and then burnt offerings were also offered at times of consecration. That is consecration of the priest, dedication of the temple. Now, 
without going into all the Bible verses, that's the best way I can explain it. But what I have done for, I don't know who um, pitched the question, but I have got a copy of this, which I've just read out, plus uh, explanation of all of these offerings, uh, a full explanation. Uh, if you want to have a word with me after, then I'll give you the full copy of all of this. It's very, very comprehensive, and I think it's the best way of answering the question. I also have one extra copy, um, and that's for anybody. So first come, first serve, and I don't want to get killed in a rush. Okay. Okay, I think that's the best way I can answer that. That's great, Dan. I, I just had to chip in there. At the start of Leviticus, you've got all of the offerings in chapters 1 to 5, which people, the, the first one, for example, the burnt offering and, and then the grain offering, they were free will offerings that you could make whenever you wanted to. And then you get to chapter 23, which is a lot of what Dan's just explained is from chapter 23 of Leviticus. And there it talks about what offerings were weekly, what offerings were monthly, what offerings were yearly, that kind of thing. So you can have a little look in chapter 23 for a little bit more on that as well. Cool. Okay. Uh, question two, which is also Dan, is uh, Leviticus chapter 21, verses 16 to 23. Why were all these people excluded and for generations to come, uh, excluded and for generations to come? I think just to, to chip in as well and say we had a, a couple of questions about this, um, just kind of why, what was going on with all these people being excluded from their priestly activities and why, uh, because of um, various conditions and stuff, couldn't they? So, Dan. Yep, coming um, up. Just let me get organized. Um, it's, it's two questions in one, really, because there's two questions that have been asked, and that is uh, uh, Leviticus chapter 21, verses 16 to 23. Why were all these people excluded for the generations to come? And it's combined with another question. Uh, Leviticus repeatedly emphasizes the need for physical perfection both in priests, sacrifices, and why was this so important to God? Uh, the two questions are linked um, within the temple. Now, just going into, um, the, take the first bit of the Leviticus 21, 16 to 23 question. Uh, why were people, why were these priests excluded for the generations to come? And I'm just going to read this verse out because it's the verse that, you can get mixed with, you can get confused with. Uh, it says, and this whole chapter of chapter 21 is to do with rules for the priests. It's all about the priests in, in, in how they should perform. So the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, for the generations to come, none of your descendants who has a defect may come near to offer the food of his God. And that don't mean that um, if you have a priest as a defect, and a defect means um, anything like um, if you're blind, um, if you're uh, in today's language vertically challenged, um, if you have um, a, a leg that is lame, anything like that, that's a defect, uh, a blemish, that's what it means. And those priests could not serve within the sacrificial altar or go in to burn incense or go into the uh, behind the veil where the, the ark was. Uh, they were all excu excluded from this. But, the, but if there was a priest and he was excluded, it didn't mean that his generation, the generations in his family that came after him could not be included uh, to go into the altar of sacrifice if that person was without blemish. Um, because obviously, uh, after so many times, maybe a hundred years, you wouldn't have any priests left because within each family, someone would, be, would have a blemish. And so uh, it was not the generations in the family, it's the, whole, the overall generations going right the way through um, the whole of the priesthood. So it, it, it just, that just refers to the priests that actually had a blemish. I just, just sort of get that out of the way because it can be confusing. So what we're looking at here is, uh, and it's the same right through Leviticus, uh, everything that uh, comes about with the sacrifices, with the priesthood, it's all pointing towards Jesus. It's all pointing towards him coming as a savior. So within the, the temple complex, starting with the animal, 
the animal has no, shouldn't have any blemish. So the animal is, is uh, uh, examined at the gate and then he's taken to the sacrificial order, he's examined by the priest, taken to the sacrificial order, and it's a, 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 an animal without blemish um, and reflecting uh, as a type of Jesus that Jesus was a lamb of God without blemish uh, and was sacrificed for us, just as this lamb was going to be sacrificed on the altar within the temple tabernacle. And then the priest didn't, shouldn't have any blemish and that's like a type of Jesus going into the uh, temple itself to burn incense and going into the once a year uh, day of atonement within uh, where the ark was. Everything to do with those priests shouldn't have had any blemish and they're all leading and looking forward to Jesus because when Jesus came, he was the uh, lamb slain for us without blemish. He was a sinless lamb. Uh, so all of these things are looking forward uh, to, to the coming of Jesus. Now, it, it's, um, when, we, when I think of this, uh, I think of this is, is today, that today we, you and I, were priests and we got blemishes. Uh, I'm deaf as a post, right? So I'm sure you're all lovely people and you, have, you know, you're all lovely, you have got blemishes, but, but, but I am, right? But I'm still a priest and you're still a priest. And within the new priesthood, men and women are priests. Under the old priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, it was just men. And when a man died within that priesthood, then another man came along and took his place. But now when Jesus came, He's under a new priesthood. He's under the priesthood of the order of Melchizedek. And we are under that order. And so he is a priest forever under the order of Melchizedek. If you want to look that up for yourself anytime, have a look at Hebrews chapter 7, and it goes into the order of Melchizedek. So we are now under this new priesthood. This new priesthood is never going to die like the old priests under the Aaronic covenant. And so we are under that covenant, and so we are going to be priests forever under this new order with Jesus as a high priest. So all of these things coming through uh, Leviticus is all leading forward to Jesus and the new priesthood. The new priesthood should have stopped when Jesus came. Uh, in actual fact, uh, it, 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 it did stop, it, uh, but if I can sort of explain this, uh, the nation of Israel still carried, still carried that on after Jesus uh, rose again. But in effect, that priesthood had ended because a new priesthood under the order of Melchizedek had come in. So the, the priesthood, round about the time of uh, Zechariah, who was the father of John the Baptist uh, and was uh, preaching in the temple, uh, was uh, serving right in the temple at the altar of incense when Gabriel came to him and Gabriel said to him, you're, you're going to be a father, you're, you're, you're going to have a child. And so John the Baptist was of the tribe of Levi uh, because his father was of the tribe of Levi and his father was serving within the temple. So that era should have finished then, but the Jews didn't recognize Jesus as a savior, but Jesus came, he's now our great high priest He's under the order of Melchizedek, and we are priests forever within that order. Uh, just want to drop back to uh, the priesthood which we started off with, with the, the, the priest under the old covenant and with the blemishes which they had. Those priests which couldn't go in to the temple to offer the sacrifices, they were not set out on a limb, they had jobs uh, which they could do within a temple complex. For instance, there was a, a room called the Worm Room, and within that room, they could look through all the wood that was going to go on a sacrificial altar, and they could pick out worms, blemishes, bugs, anything out of the wood, so that that wood, as far as possible, would be wood without blemish going into that altar. So everything uh, following, when you went through that gate, 
and you came to that first sacrificial order, everything going right way through should have been without blemish, representing uh, a type of Jesus, um, looking, to, looking towards him and his coming. So for us today, don't worry about blemishes or anything like that. We're still priests. And, and, and that's one of the, the great things of, of the new covenant. And our great high priest is never going to die like the Aaronic priesthood. And so we're, we're, we're going to be there forever. Um, when we're up there, we won't have any blemishes. But right down here, blemishes and all, we're all priests. That's cool, Dan. Um, two quick points to throw in there. I, I can't remember if you said this one. Um, but um, you picked up on the, that they all the all the priests, whether they had blemishes or not, had had a role. You picked up on that, didn't you? I don't know if you did. Did you say that? Um, you know that they ate the meat from the sacrifice. All the priests, blemish or not, got to do that as well. So, well, you can read this and be like, why were they excluded? And where's all the inclusion and the God of love? Actually, they they did all have a place. There was inclusion. They all did take part, and they just so there was still an inclusion in that. Um, and I think. Um, just a major on the thing that Dan said. Do you remember in the New Testament, Jesus said that all the law and all the prophets, referring to the whole Old Testament, all of it was about him? You know, Jesus said that. He said all of it was about him. And I think sometimes we can read this stuff and um, we can get so sucked into what was going on in the day, because it was going on, that we can forget that everything that was going on was trying to point forward to Jesus. So we can look at it and go, well, why were these people this or that, or what happened there? But actually, God's trying to show us something about what only he could do in Jesus. And so I think it's really key to hold on to that stuff when you get, you get on to, to chapters and verses like that, which can make us feel a bit uneasy. But actually, it does make us feel uneasy. And it should make us feel uneasy because we are a fallen people and only Jesus can save. And all of this was pointing to him. So just hold on to that, I think. Um, great. Chris, next question. What is the salt of the covenant? Okay. So um, I suppose first off, a disclaimer. My, my blemish, among others, is that I'm a vegetarian so um yeah so and also a, a really um poorly uh performing vegan as well so try my best but i've also got a weak bladder but there you go um the, it, well that's that's right um but obviously under the old order I, I wouldn't have been allowed allowed in i wouldn't have been allowed to eat the meat obviously so um but Yes, that's right. Yeah, or in the just broadcast from the other room. But um, the 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 point is, it leads nicely into this this um, question about sort of the covenant, um, because it's referred in Leviticus two with regards to the grain offering, which is the offering that doesn't involve meat. It's the corn or Linda McCartney um, sacrifice. So the cynics might say that. Uh, this, this instruction, which I'll just read to you, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. So the cynic might say, well, you know, God was just asking them to put salt on the grain offering because, you know, it didn't taste any good because there was no meat in it. But um, it does say there that all the offerings should be seasoned with the salt of the covenant. Um, so aside from the fact that, you know, obviously certainly with the burnt offering, there was this idea of God consuming the food. So perhaps God just wanted it to be seasoned appropriately. Um, and, and maybe occasionally he'd whisper in their ear, you know, could you sprinkle a bit of cumin on it as well? I, I don't know. But um, aside from that, there's a couple of other references um, in, in the Old Testament to, um, well, covenant of, of salt or salt of covenant. Um, and I'm going to read them to you very briefly. The first is from Numbers. It says this, all the sac and this is God uh, saying, all the sacred gifts that the Israelites set aside for God, I give to you, to your sons and to the daughters that are with you as a Jew for all time. It shall be an everlasting covenant of salt before God for you and for your offspring as well. 
And then in 2 Chronicles 13, 5, it says, Surely you know that the God of Israel gave David kingship over Israel forever to him and his sons by a covenant assault. So I don't know. I don't, I don't, to be honest, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of explanation as to what that actually involved. But I think all I drew from that is that the two references there refer to a covenant that, I mean, obviously covenant with God is meant to be preserved and last forever. But those two in particular in reference to a sort of generational covenant that continues, that carries on, and salt, as we know, has a preserving effect. So I would say just as, you know, the various offerings had some symbolic meaning, the sort of the covenant was about preserving um, something. And obviously all of those covenants that are referred to in Leviticus are about preservation. They're about preservation of relationship, preservation of righteousness, preservation of um, being in the assembly with God. So salt obviously refers to that. I just want to share this interesting fact. I'm not sure if it's sort of going beyond the realms of this question, but... Um, obviously, Jesus refers to salt and, you know, salt of the world. And if salt's lost its flavor and it's no good, then, you know, throw it out. And um, I think it's interesting. We obviously automatically assume that salt, salt there refers to flavor or preservation, which I'm sure Jesus meant. But I, I also did some research a little way back, just being interested in sort of social science. And that's an agriculture as a weird vegan, um, and, and discovered that um, in Brazil there was this experiment that was done in the 1990s over years and years. And basically they, they tracked two coconut farms, and one, one of the farms they used modern sort of fertilizing techniques to sort of keep the trees going and see how many coconuts they could grow. And, and with the other they used salt. Um, obviously a specific type of salt that's used in agriculture and they found over this number of year period that there was a three and a half times greater yield with the use of salt as compared to modern agricultural techniques um, and it just made me think maybe when Jesus was talking about salt and maybe even when the Lord was talking about salt there there was not just something about preservation but something about life giving something about reproducing when perhaps you know other methods or other ways of trying to connect don't work maybe but in the very least i think the sort of the covenant was a representation of preserving i think it um one of the great verses on salt is when uh, you, you know jesus says it you are the salt of the earth um and if if, if you lose your saltiness you know it, it it's no good um, so it's running again. It's running right way through into into the New Testament um, with all this with with all this thing. Yeah, cool. Um, a random other thing about salt, and I don't know if this is connected at all, but um, I I like it, so I'm going to throw it out there. Um, salary, as in what you get paid for doing a job. We actually get the word salary from the word salt. That's where it comes from. Uh, because in ancient times they would pay you in salt because salt was really valuable back then. So it, like, like Chris said, it, it preserves stuff. So, you know, is it the covenant of salt because it's a covenant to be preserved? Or maybe it's the covenant of salt because it's a costly covenant. And all of this stuff, remember, is pointing forward to Jesus, the one who would preserve life, the one who would pay the ultimate cost. Like, who knows? But interesting, I like that, so... Cool, man. Great answer. Next question. Leviticus 3.16. What does it mean by all the fat is the Lord's and why? Mm. So, sorry, Miriam. Miriam, I'm going to sort of be talking about animal fat now, so you may want to put your hands over your ears. It was tough for me too. But, I mean, I'm not going to lie. Um, when... Nick and the kids have bacon. Um, yeah, it's tough. But when they do, you know, Nick being the very health-conscious person she is as a nurse, um, cuts off the fat. 
and I do am known sometimes to sort of sneak into the kitchen when they're eating it to to eat it because it's going to waste anyway and it's got lots of good good stuff in it. Um, but the reason I share that is because I, I think it's of value to answering this question. And and we all know, you know, pork crackling is probably the best part of, of pork, isn't it? So, um, you know, there's something about fat and not only being tasty, but I mean, I don't know the exact science, but I, I do, I, I pre, fat obviously stores energy. You know, when you, when you eat things with fat in it, it's there to give you energy to do whatever it is you're doing in your day. And obviously, if you eat too much, it gets it's stored there. But it is useful. It's, I think we have to go back and remember that, actually, whilst most of us do cut off that fatty bit off of bacon, off of whatever steak, got to stop talking about it, and, you know, I'm just going to start salivating. It's, it, 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 it's actually, God put it there for a reason. It's there for, for good reason. We need, we obviously need fat in our diet. And actually, going back to this time, when obviously you couldn't go to the supermarket and get quinoa and avocado and all the lovely vegan and vegetarian alternatives to getting protein and fat and everything else, fat was really important in 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 diet so just bear that in mind what's also interesting which i discovered sort of trying to answer this question doing some research is the word for fat is also there you go it must be good because matt 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 was probably going to say it too is also the same word used for best or finest so already in the sort of the, the the very root of the word there's this there's this assumption and understanding amongst people and god that fat represented the best of something the finest of something so ultimately to give something up and to to actually to prohibit eating it as part of the the offering you know everything else was fair game except the blood and the fat and obviously blood in itself has there's obvious reasons why that was sort of set apart but this the fat was this idea that it was the best thing and just to just to um sort of draw attention to that in genesis 45 it talks about you know the land the land of canaan and how that was the the finest and and fat and how that's interchangeable and there's lots of other examples so going back to the whole idea of cutting off Bacon, we obviously, uh, fat off bacon, for instance, we do that because we assume it's a health thing, which I'm sure it is. It's probably not actually that tasty in comparison to the actual bacon bit, but that that bit, obviously not of bacon, but of other meat <laughs> to the Jews, to the people, to, to those sacrificing was, was the key bit. So I think, to summarize, God saying all, all fat is the Lord's is, the finest, you know, the first fruits of what you have is, my, and whereas other religions may require you to sacrifice your firstborn, I'm not asking you to do that, I'm asking you to still give up your first fruits. That would be my sort of relatively simple explanation. Great, love that. Yeah, the best part for the Lord. Okay, um, next question, why I've got it written down here, I don't know why I'm turning around. <clears throat> why kill anything in order to act uh, as a sacrifice or a substitute? Why does there have to be death? It's a good question. Why does there have to be death? Why bother killing something anyway? So let me tell you a story. Um, I had some time off last week, and Emily and I, we spent some time painting bits of our house. Uh, particularly the chimney breast in the bedroom because it was a hideous colour because we tried a while ago to, to paint it. Emily wanted like this, um, we've got like a navy dark blue kind of walls and then on the chimney breast there's a bit of a feature wall we were kind of going to go for this kind of like dusty pink only it ended up looking more like dirty pink. It, it was, wasn't, it was a terrible, terrible colour. So we needed to... Um, to do something about it. Uh, so in order to cover it, we had to go out 
we had to go to B&Q. If you've ever been to B&Q, the staff don't speak. It's not the best experience. Okay, you go to B&Q. <laughs> we had to get the paint that we needed. We had to come back. We had to take time out of our day. We had to move our furniture. We had to mask and tape the, the wall. Then we had to put on special clothes in order to carry out this ritual of painting, you know? Like, it was, it was a costly thing to do in order to cover up what was already on the wall and to cover it with a different color. So um, why do I tell you this story? Um, <clears throat> turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1 verse 15 says, Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. It is out there. Like the color on my wall, it was out there. And something has to be done about it. We could not carry on going to bed in our bedroom with that hideous color on the wall and waking up every morning. I must confess we've painted it with an equally hideous color and we're not quite sure what we're going to do about it just yet. But <laughs> uh, it is out there. Sin is out there. It's, when, when, um, when sin happens and it comes into our world, it has an impact, right? The wages of sin is death, is what the Bible says. Sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Death is out there, and it's our death. And you'll know, you'll know, we talked about sin before, being hata, being to miss the mark, right? And so when we miss the mark, we end up bringing death into our world. When other people miss the mark, sometimes they bring death into our world. We can end up being hurt. Bits of us can die, relationships can die, families can die, all kinds of things can die. We start to die because sin is out there and it has come into our world and death is on the wall and the dusty pink needs to go. You know, it needs to be covered up. Something needs to be done with it. Um, and so um, why sacrifice an animal? Well, that goes all the way back uh, into Genesis. So in, in Genesis 2 verse 17, God says, don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for you will surely die. You'll be cut off from the source of life and you will die. Death will become part of your, your life. And then in Genesis chapter 3, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3 verse 21, right at the moment when it appears that God is really angry and is throwing them out of the garden, there's this little verse that says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. There's this moment of grace in the story of rejection. There's this moment of grace where God covers them. He takes an animal and the first sacrifice is made. And he doesn't cover them with fig leaves like they've tried to cover themselves. He's looking at them and he's like, you're about to live cut off from me and that will not cover you. So he takes one of his own animals, his creation. He sacrifices it to make garments of skin to cover them, to cover up the dusty pink, <laughs> to cover up that, that hideous color that they are now marred with and, and to cover them. Um, so... When you put something out there, it's got to be dealt with, right? So, so why is that animal sacrifice? Because something needs to cover it. Um, so the skin in, in Genesis. Also, you'll notice in Leviticus, it tells us that the lifeblood is in the animal. The lifeblood is in the animal. And so there's a sense in which the blood of this living animal, the life of one animal is covering the death of another. It's declaring life over Excuse me, over the one that has died. I've just had McDonald's, it's coming back up. <laughs> it was not, no, the muck plant. It was not that. Um, so, so it's to make atonement, it's to cover, to cover over, like we covered over the paint on our wall. Um, and the only thing to cover death with is life, right? The lifeblood. So that's what that's all about. It's all symbolic again. It's all pointing forward to what Jesus is going to do to deal with our sin and to, to restore creation. Is that okay? That, that's why. Okay, so next question. Uh, yeah, go on, Dan. Um, there's one sacrifice um, which was not killed. And that's uh, on the Day of Atonement, there were two goats. One was called a scapegoat, which the, it still comes through to the day, that word. And the, and the other goat had to be sacrificed. So what would happen was that the priest would sacrifice one of the goats 
and the blood would be taken into the, um, beyond the curtain to uh, the mercy seat where uh, incense would be burnt and then the blood would be sprinkled. But the other goat, the priest would lay his hands on the head of the goat and all the sins of Israel would be put on the head of that goat and a goat would be taken out into the wilderness and set free. In other words, the sins were being taken away from um, the hall of the encampment of Israel. Uh, and that's exactly what Jesus did for us because he was sacrificed as the first goat, if you like, another type, another type of Jesus. And then the sins, he took all the sins of, of the world on him and then when he died on the cross, he, went, he descended into Hades. Those sins uh, he took and, if you like, part them in Hades. And then he rose from the dead. So instead, the sins went into the desert for the uh, people of Israel. And our sins went, if you like, down into Hades and, and, was, and was part there where they belong. So it's the only sacrifice I know where um, the animal was not, not sacrificed. Um, um, cool. So the next question then is, um, if I put it up, yeah, what was the grain offering for? Um, so great question. This, if you turn to Leviticus chapter 2, verse 1, it says, When anyone brings a grain offering to the Lord, their offering is to be of the finest flour. Um, so uh, when anyone brings a in Hebrew, the word is manah. Okay, when anyone brings the manah offering uh, to the Lord, it is to be of the finest flour. Um, let me just let you in on a little secret here. The word manah doesn't mean grain. <laughs> um, it, that's not what the word manah actually means. So it's a really bad translation. But in the English, we call it the grain offering because what comes next is all about grain, finest flour. So um, we think of flour as the flour we have in our kitchens, right? But that's not really what flour was like back then. It was really, it was really grainy. It, it wasn't very fine at all. It was quite rough. And so in order to carry out this offering, it really took effort because they had to grind this flour down, this grain down into a fine flour, which is where we get the concept of the grain offering, if that makes sense, okay? Um, but the actual word that we translate as grain is the word mana, uh, and, and it actually means tribute, gratitude, or gift. That's what it means. So... It really says, when anyone among you brings a tribute, gratitude, or gift offering to the Lord, they are to take the grain and grind it down into the finest flour. That's what it's saying here in, in the Hebrew. Okay? So first of all, that's, that's what it is. It's not actually just grain. The offering is a gift or gratitude offering. Um, it was mixed with olive oil, and some, some of it was presented uncooked. Some of it was presented cooked. Um, essentially, it, it, was a, it was a food offering. It was a meal that they were bringing to the Lord. Okay, um, What was it for? It was for mana. It was for gratitude, for thankfulness. So anyone could bring this. It was a free will offering. And it was like you were bringing it. It was like you were kind of knocking on God's door, the, the, the door of his house. You're coming in and saying, oh, I'm so thankful that you've done this for me, that I just baked you this. Or I've bought this salad round. Or I've made you a cake. That, that, that's what it is. That's, that's what the grain offering, the mana offering is. It, it's all about that. Who loves food? Yes. No, no. I mean, if someone else brings something hot and someone brings a salad. Here's a bowl of bacon fat. Emma wants the fat. Chris wants the salad. <laughs> Got that sorted. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you'll find as well that this offering appears in uh, chapter 23, verse 4. So again, the mana offering called the grain offering there um, in the midst of a number of other things going on. Wh why is it mentioned in chapter 23? Chapter 23 is, is different to the first bit. It's talking about when they, it says, when you get into the land that I've promised you, here's what you are to do when your fields produce a harvest. You, are, you can do the manna offering like this. 
Why is God saying that to them in, in chapter 23 when he's already told them about the manna in chapter 2? That The reason for that is, is because this is about a different set of circumstances now. He's saying, hey, when you get into the promised land, remember the land that I told you that's going to be flowing with milk and honey? Remember the finest land, the best land, the choice land that Chris mentioned earlier on? When you get into that land and you just find that the fields start producing all this harvest for you and, and you think, what kind of offering do we need to give to God to say thank you? Because all the other gods that had been in the land previously, the people that had been there sacrificed their children, they sacrificed this, they sacrificed that. Like, do we have to do that? God's like, no, no, no. When you get there, if you're thankful for the offering, for the, for the harvest that you've got, then you just need to bring them in that offering. You just need to grind up some flour, bake me a cake, and I'm going to love it. That's what that's about. Is that all right? So that's what that offering is. Okay. Um, uh Go, yeah, Dan. Uh, what I've got here um, for the, you know, for whoever wants this, as I said, there's, I've got two copies, right? Um, just on, on the green offering, um, it, it, it's interesting to know that um, an e-valve is 23 litres and a tenth part of an e-valve is about four drive pints. Now, what that means is that for every animal that was sacrificed, there's quite a lot of um, flour and things going on here. So um, for, for one, one pint of flour weighs about 14 ounces, so a tenth of an epoch is about three and a half pounds. So for each bull that was sacrificed and you give a cereal uh, or grain offering, it'd be 10 and a half pounds of flour that had to be given. With a ram, it was seven pounds of flour. And with a lamb, it was three and a half pounds of flour. So we're talking quite a comprehensive amount of, of um, flour and, and, and things to go with a green offering here. Um, it sounds like they were baking a pie. It sounds like they were making a pie. Yeah, and you can make, you can make, the, you can make it out of, you know, yeah, make a load of, yeah, yeah, you can make a load of stuff out of that, can you? Um, but I'm, I'm, just, I'm just putting that out there. Um, advertising this for anybody who wants it. <laughs> Get your copies hot off the press from Den afterwards. Um, okay, uh, next question and last question that we're going to answer, and then we've got a question that you're going to answer tonight. So um, it's because we can find the answer. No, I'm joking. <laughs> uh, so the last question then is: um, <clears throat> Blood is sprinkled on the sides of the altar in most offerings, but in chapter four, it's put on the horns of the altar. Why is this different? Why is this different? So, a uh, couple of things then. Let me just show you the altar. This is I've borrowed from what Dan used last time. Remember this picture? Here's the altar. Can you see the little horns coming off the four corners, the little kind of bendy bits? You, you'll see it as well. And this is the altar inside the tent. And you've got these little horns sticking off the side. You see that? So on some of the offerings, they would get the blood and sprinkle it on the side of the altar messy and on other offering in chapter four they would take the blood from little bowls and they would just kind of put it on the horns of the altar um so why and why why was it different for the offering in chapter four to the other offerings um so the word for horn is the word karen okay karen in the hebrew um and it it, it can be translated horn but it also can be translated strength so do you, you remember, I've probably said this a number of times, that the Hebrew language is a very image-based picture language, okay? So all the words have pictures that went with them. So take, for example, um, uh, kavod, which is the Hebrew word for glory, okay? I don't know what you, this blew my mind. Because when I used to think of glory, I thought of like, ah, bright, shining, white light, okay? Uh, but the Hebrew word kavod comes from the root word kavet. And, and the, um, the image of that word is a rich man weighed down by the gold in his pockets. You, you picture that? You can see someone like Middle Eastern dress with all their gold in their pockets kind of being weighed down, right? And, and so the word glory, it means weight or significance. That's the image that goes with it. Um, so that's how the Hebrew language works. Lots of pictures, okay? Um, the word karen means horn or it means strength. And the image is of like an animal with horns battling with another animal. 
You know, that kind of like going in, like the strongest one, they're wrestling with their horns and one's going to come out triumphant. You see that? So um, the altar's got four of these horns, one on each corner. Um, why? So turn to 1 Kings, or 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 50. So there's this guy called Adonijah. We'll go with that. How would you say it like that? Yeah, great. Uh, and it says that in fear of Solomon, he went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Then Solomon was told, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon and is clinging to the horns of the altar. He says, let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. There's this um, kind of understanding that if someone was in trouble, they could get to the horns of the altar and get hold of them. It was a place of salvation. It was a place where they would be listened to. I love that. Right, so the horns are symbolic of the place of salvation, um, and if you picture now, the altar has got these horns on it, and it is the place where God is going to battle for your salvation. Isn't that cool? That's that imagery of the, of the strength of the Lord uh, at going to battle for the salvation of His people, making a way for them to be saved, fighting against their sin. Um, this was a place where they could be saved. Uh, in Leviticus uh, chapter four, they put blood on the horns of the altar because the the offering in Leviticus chapter four is the sin offering. It's the offering that's going to deal with their sin. Is the offering that's going to bring them salvation. They're putting blood on the horns because the horns are the place of salvation. Do you see that? Um, so the blood going on the horns is like this symbolic uh, picture of the strength of God winning the battle for their salvation. You know, if one animal goes to battle with another, one's going to come away with bloody horns, right? because they've won the battle against the other one. There's this imagery of that, there's blood on the horns, that our God has won our salvation in, in this place where he's battled for it. Um, if you turn to Psalm 18, verse 2, you will, oh, too far. Here we go. You'll come across this phrase that comes up in the Bible, Psalm 18 verse 2 says, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. The horn of my salvation. You see that? And if you go to Luke chapter 1, um, verse 68 to 69, so Luke chapter 1, verse 68-69 says this. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Do you remember that we said earlier on, everything in the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus? What's this guy talking about here? Jesus, the horn of the Lord's salvation from the line of David, come to battle for and win their salvation. And he too was going to be covered in blood, right? Horn in, in the biblical um, imagery is often translated as strength. Um, sometimes it's used in a symbolic way to represent rulers. So do you remember in, um, in Daniel and in Revelation, the beast had horns? And the horns represented kings or rulers or those in strength, those with power. And all of it is pointing forward to Jesus, building up this image where there would come the king, the horn of salvation, who would be covered in blood on the altar and would be the lamb and the high priest all wrapped up in one and would fight for and win the salvation of his people. So why in chapter four uh, is the blood on the horns and not sprinkled against the altar like the rest of it? Why is this offering different? Because this offering is the sin offering where the battle for the salvation of, the, of, of God's people would take place. Does that make sense? Great, great. Um, great, guys. So... I knew someone was going to ask that. Chris. I'm just thinking. <laughs> uh, that's a good question, and I don't have the answer for you right now because I haven't looked into it. So uh, why was it splattered against the side? Um, uh, actually, I do have some answers for you. So um, you will notice. Go with me to chapter 16, Leviticus 16, 16. Come on. Oh, 
So Leviticus 16 is the Day of Atonement, the day when the high priest goes in to atone for the people. Um, and it says, let's go from 15, Leviticus 16, 15. Uh, he shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do it the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. Um, as you read through Leviticus, you will discover that they sprinkle blood on everything. Like when the priests got ordained, there was oil and then there was blood. Praise the Lord that we don't do that anymore because it would have been a messy service, wouldn't it? Um, but um, basically, they would sprinkle it on everything. And we said earlier on, didn't we, that blood was, a, was atonement. It was covering, okay? So it wasn't just that... Um, it wasn't just that the people were covered and their sin was covered over. They'd sprinkle it on the mercy seat because under the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant were the Ten Commandments. So the idea of sprinkling blood on the top of the mercy seat, which was the throne of God where the presence of God would sit, was that then when God looked at the people and then he looked down and he could see the law beneath him, it was covered by the blood so he wouldn't judge them against it. Do you see that? And again, why did they sprinkle it on the side of the altar? Well, because... People's sin messes up the world and it messes up God's holy space. And God cannot be in the space that is not holy because he is holy. It's like the sun. You get too close, burn up. At the right distance, it gives life. And so a little bit like that with God. If he was to come into the, into the tabernacle and it had been messed up by human sin, then you could just imagine the whole thing would probably, well, be like when the fire came out and burned up the sons of Aaron. Do you remember that in chapter 10 of Leviticus? Um, and, and so they'd sprinkle the blood. It was a little bit like Emily and I painting our wall, right? We were getting it ready so that we would want to sleep in that room, which we, we're still unsure about the color, but hey. But like, so we're getting it ready so that we want to sleep in that room. We want to be present in that room. And so again, it was a bit like they were painting over the sin. They were making the space holy and covering it so that God would come. But when it came to, so those things were about making the space that God would come and dwell with them. But the, on the altar, on the horns of the altar, that was about atoning for the sins that they had committed. And does that make sense? And God was saving them. So that's my best off-the-cuff answer for the follow-up question, which was, oh gosh, there's another one. Yes. In modern day Jerusalem, yeah. the non-Messianic Jews still make sacrifices. In modern day Jerusalem, do non-Messianic Jews still make sacrifices? Uh, the temple's not there. So they, they can't do it in a minute, Richard, um, but they want to do it. Um, they, there is a, uh, an organization within Jerusalem um, which has a building at the moment, and they have um, prepared 90 items to go into the temple if it's built on a temple mount. They have prepared uh, priest garments as, as the priest wore um, back in the days of the Aaronic priesthood. And they are um, getting together, breeding red heifers. If you go back into the Old Testament, into the days of Moses, then a red heifer was taken outside the camp, and it was burnt, sacrificed, burnt, and then the ashes were brought back into the camp um, for a purification process. And right at this moment in Israel, they are actually breeding red heifers. And if they get a perfect red heifer, as we're talking about um, going into the sacrifice within the temple, they had to have no blemish. If they get a red heifer without any blemish, they'll sacrifice it on the Mount of Olives. Um, they have to, there are people there with a the full intention of rebuilding the temple on the Temple Mount, which is going to cause aggro because the Dome of the Rock is there uh, and it could cause World War III, as you can imagine. So, but there are. This, um, this organization, which is backed by the government. Uh, and so right up to this moment, everything is being prepared to um, uh, rebuild the temple, if you like. Uh, uh, if you go into Ezekiel, um, and this is a funny one, really, because it depends on the way you think. With Ezekiel, it almost seems like the temple would be rebuilt on the, on the, on the Mount of Olives, on the uh, Temple Mount. Um, and 
um, I hope I'm not waffling on too much here, but um, where you've got the Golden Gate, the Golden Gate is on the, the eastern wall of Jerusalem, and it's a, the, the gate that Jesus came down from the Mount of Olives up through the Kidron Valley and went through the Golden Gate to come onto the temple. Well, the, it, it, the Ottomans in, in the 14, 1500s were so worried about Jesus returning and going through that Golden Gate that they bricked the Golden Gate up. So if you look at the Golden Gate now, it's blocked up, it's, 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 it's bricked up. You can go through the other gates like Damascus Gate and all the rest of it, but you can't go through the Golden Gate. And they also put in front of that Golden Gate tombs because Jews can't go through uh, land that's not clean. So they, put, they deliberately put uh, graves in, in front of the, the Golden Gate and, and blocked it up. Um, obviously, if Jesus comes back, he's going to come back on the Mount of Olives in a, a blocked up gate, he's going to stop him. But that's, that, that's where they're coming from. So, so uh, the, the, the Muslims are deadly serious about all this. They're deadly serious about the Temple Mount and who's going to go on there. They're deadly serious about Jews. Jews cannot walk across the Temple Mount and fall down in worship or anything like that. It causes a riot. And the Jews can only go onto the Temple Mount through one, one gate, and that gate leads up from uh, uh, the Wailing Wall. So it's, it's, and it's policed by Israeli uh, police. So everything is tight at the moment, but they, the Jews have the full intention of rebuilding the Temple on the Temple Mount. Just to add to that, um, so la last year, I think, uh, possibly the year before, I bought a commentary on Leviticus, um, a Jewish commentary on Leviticus by Lord Rabbi Sachs, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who was a member of the House of Lords, who was the kind of head of the Jewish um, community here in the UK. And um, really fascinating book, like, to start to understand Leviticus as the Jewish people did was, in, was incredible, but also so heartbreaking because you'd read stuff and they'd go so far and then it was like they'd given up hope. And you're like, no, no, it's not over because Jesus, like, and, and it was just so sad. But um, it was interesting because he was talking about, oh, well, we, we used to do this. We used to sacrifice animals. We used to do that. We used to, but now we don't do that anymore. Um, he said that now... Um, prayer and the reading of scripture has become the new sacrifice and fasting has become the new this and that and they kind of his view and I guess the view of lots of maybe western Jewish people then would be that these other kind of daily things uh, have become the new sacrifices the new way to atone for sin so he talked about atoning for sin by doing good so good deeds being um being a kind of the new sacrifice for, for forgiveness and all of that kind of thing. So, um, uh, yeah, I guess maybe in different parts of the world, the Jews are doing different things or thinking different things, but that was nothing that was said there about sacrifice. That's cool. Um, great. Any other follow-up questions? Oh, okay. Right, it's your turn, okay? So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to put a question up. And then we're going to give you kind of five, ten minutes to chat together in groups and to come up with your best answer for this question. And then you're going to teach us. Is that all right? You can Google, uh, but try not to find the page that I Googled because that's my answer. <laughs> you can Google, you can look in your Bible, you can, you know, whatever it is you want to do, chat with each other, um, go for it. And we don't care, the, the, the wackier and the weirder, the better. Let's, let's see what comes out. And um, so the question is this, why, uh-oh, tipped over my water, sorry. Why males for some offerings and females for others? You'll notice that in some offerings there are male uh, uh, animals offered and for others it says male and female and for others it just says female so why and what's the difference so you got five ten minutes we'll see how we get on chat in your groups and then I'll come around with the mic and you can share your ideas to everyone else is that all right go for it all right then who wants to go first this group want to go first okay then Who's your spokesperson? Oh, Kath? Oh. Come on then, right. Oh. oh, what did you say just now? Okay, all oh, right, okay. 
Um, so Cheryl's take on it, so I'm giving yeah. you the credit for this. So it should be up there. I can yeah. Um, was it main, it generally male and female offerings depending on what it was for. So if you think of the man is strength and, you know, um, leadership and that sort of thing, and the woman wasn't. So therefore, we were sort of thinking that it, that was sort of a thing of the time. And so if it was... Um, a strong, like a heavy sin or something to do with uh, leadership in, and things of hierarchy, then it was a male offering. Men were worse sinners, is that what you mean? <laughs> Behave yourself, die. And then, yeah, and then, you know, the females were sort of the lesser sins sort of thing. Okay, cool. So, so maybe male ones for more serious sins and female ones for lesser sins, that kind of thing. Okay, that's cool. Who wants to go next? I'm not, I'm not giving any feedback. I'm just going to go around to get all the answers. Is that all right? So I'm just going to come this way. You guys, who's... Well, the same sort of thing, really. The, the, the male is the more dominant out there. The woman is more subservient, and so they do the lesser things as opposed to the guy would do the bigger, more important things back then. I wouldn't say it's like that now. But based upon their culture back yes. then. And yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, same sort of thing. Yeah. Great, all right, you guys? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if it was something to do with picturing Jesus, okay. it was a male. If it was just for ordinary people, it was female. I think that's what we... The, that was the gist of it. Yeah, okay, cool, all right. Yeah, so something to do with the male ones being linked to Jesus and the female ones being for the com common people, that kind of thing. You guys? We actually had no idea, and the answer to our question was, we came here to ask you. That was the first time. <laughs> <laughs> and in order to get around it, we asked Dennis. <laughs> and it was basically what you just said, so... Yeah, the male was Jesus, kind of pointing forward like that. And if it's male and female, it was inclusive, inclusive of everyone. Is that right? Something along those lines. Okay, great, awesome. Were you guys part of this group? No. Do you want? Have you got another answer? I kind of said the same, but um, that the kind of female and for everyone is kind of like the obviously Eve and like the women bore like. Everybody. So the seed of the woman and then that linking with the female, very nice. Love that. Oh, there's all kinds of gems coming out here, guys. I'm loving it. Right, you guys. What they said. <laughs> she wrote down there. <laughs> it's basically what they said. Oh, okay. Great. Okay. Great. Great. Um, do you guys want to chip in anything? Okay. I'm just going to read you someone else's answer. Is that all right? And you guys have pretty much covered it all. But um, this was cool. I, I, um, I hadn't really thought about this. So it says, um, here we go. Sorry. It says, uh, most likely the male is a representative of Jesus Christ, the man Jesus. The burnt offering is a picture of a complete sacrifice, and it must be a male. Uh, also, the sin offering for a ruler must be male. A ruler would be someone like a king, a priest, a judge, or a prophet. So again, all pointing towards Jesus. Jesus is all of those. The female would represent the common people, as in Leviticus 4, 22 to 23, in reference to the sin offering. Men are often identified in scripture as they who are born of a woman. Um, the female would therefore be a fit representative of mankind as a whole. The peace offering could be either male or female because it was a picture of our peace with God and our fellowship with him and with each other. All are included. The sin offering, which deals with the sin nature, could be either male or female, depending on the purpose of the offering. The common man's greatest problem is his sin nature. So the female was used for the common man. However, Jesus, represented by the male for the ruler, became sin for us on the cross. And it goes on to say a couple of other things. But essentially, what you guys said, so... <laughs> yeah. um, epic, guys. You see? 
you can do this. <laughs> you guys did it without us. That's amazing. Um, cool. Is that, is that all, all okay? Any follow-up comments or questions anyone wants to make? My husband was speaking in an open air and a load of uh, Northern Ireland, very obviously Catholics, came along see, to disrupt and heckle. And they said to him, um, was Mary a sinner? Well, he hadn't been saved five minutes, but he suddenly remembered that she brought two turtle dove shoes. So he said, well, she must have been because of what she brought from the temple. Anyway, he got stabbed in the back. Totally unaware of it till somebody said, do you realize you've got, you've got a knife sticking out your back? No, but he shouldn't have obviously implied that she was. <laughs> Blessed, but still a sinner. <clears throat> awesome. On that note, <laughs> Chris, do you want to pray? Yeah. All right. Cool. <clears throat> Father, it's, um, it's good to come here and speculate and answer questions, ask more questions, speculate again. Um, there is this cycle of learning and um, gaining wisdom which is good, which we know you are pleased with, but it's also good to acknowledge that there are just some questions that we cannot answer, um, such sort of higher thoughts and profound, the profound nature of things that are beyond us. But thank you, Lord, that um, that does not stop us from coming into your presence Thank you that your Holy Spirit um, ultimately is what gives us wisdom. And so just want to ask God that um, for all the knowledge, all the, all the good things that we learn um, that help us understand you and your ways, that you would give us your Holy Spirit. And as we leave the building, as we wake up tomorrow, that um, we would know your presence and thank you, Jesus, that you are the horn of our salvation and that with you we are in an everlasting covenant. Uh, the, the, the sort of covenant, the sort of relationship that will never fade away. And um, as Dem was sort of referencing there, nothing will stop you. You are coming again and, and we just long for that day um, in the midst of all the troubles that we see. Uh, yeah, peace just on, upon all of us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Cool. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Um, get your questions in for Romans. Yeah. Uh, everyone's starting to see how Romans and Leviticus, like, dovetail together. Yes. Oh, guys. Yeah. Um, but cool. Awesome. Great. Next month, same time, same place. Awesome.